All right, so I want, I want to talk to you um, about uh, what I call a new covenant, the truth about freedom. I believe that the new covenant is the truth about the freedom that Jesus referred to um, when he said, if the Son makes you free, you will be free indeed. Uh, that may not come across in its full implied strength to us if we don't know the journey up to that point. But Jesus was releasing that to a Jewish people who had all their lives been raised around the temple and around Judaism and around Hebrew teaching that, of course, was rooted in the law and the commandments. So for Jesus to use this double positive statement was very staggering to them, that if the Son makes you free, that's one thing, you will be free indeed. So he was talking about a freedom that, that most of them had been unable to grasp. And I believe that that freedom comes in what Jesus came to release, which was something that the Bible calls the new covenant. So I want to start by teaching it from its first reference in the Old Testament and its equivalent reference in the New Testament. So we, we build a foundation of thought and understanding about what we mean by new covenant. Um, one of the sadnesses that I have as I go around the world uh, and hear people use this statement, which is a familiar phrase, particularly in, in evangelical Christianity, is that um, when I hear the phrase new covenant used, um, they're meaning something very different to what I understand. And so I'm going to share with you what I understand so you can see what you think about the new covenant. So the root scripture for understanding the new covenant is, is in the Old Testament in the book of Jeremiah the prophet. And uh, it's in chapter 31 of Jeremiah. Now, this whole chapter of Jeremiah, of course, Jeremiah is known as a prophet, and therefore you have to read what he writes with an understanding of the prophetic implications of it. And um, Jeremiah chapter 31 is a very prophetic chapter. If, if, if I wanted to, which I don't, uh, and if we had time, which we're not going to make, I could show you several things from Jeremiah chapter 31 to show you how he makes staggering statements about the future uh, of which this is just one, but I don't want to take time to have to uh, emphasize that with you at the expense of spending time on this. But if you're interested, you can ask me and I'll talk to you about it. So if we start in verse 31, um, here we get the first scriptural outpouring of this thing called New Covenant. So I'm going to read it to you from the New International Version. Uh, the time is coming, declares the Lord when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Now, before we read any further, I need to get one thing out of the way so that it helps us, and I need your indulgence to do this because I don't want to take a long time theologically to show you why I need your indulgence on this, but it's with respect to this statement with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. I'd like you to allow me, if you would, to use the phrase, my people, okay? Um, that will help us to understand what we're about to read. It's very accurate, but again, we're not going to spend time on the theology of that tonight. It's something we can talk about, but I want you to allow me to use the phrase, 
my people. Now, some people who would argue with you because of the implications of the new covenant that it was only to Israel and to Judah have a major problem. Because if the new covenant was only to Israel and Judah, then nobody who's not part of Israel and Judah are in the new covenant. But anybody who believes in salvation by faith through grace will tell you that they're in the new covenant. But if it's only to the house of Israel and Judah, they can't be. Do you understand what I'm saying? So there are many, there are many um, processes of, of apologetic argument to show that we're okay to use this phrase. So I need you to allow me to do that. So, so the time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with my people. It will not be like the covenants that I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt. Because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds. I want you to notice there that singular, I will put my law in their minds. This is going to be very important as we talk about this. And I will write it, singular, on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. Or as one version says, which you'll probably hear me quote more, this, Your sins and unrighteous acts I will remember no more. Now, in order to talk about the new covenant, we have to first understand the nature of it, okay? And there is a huge clue in the title. It's a new covenant, okay? There's the clue. It's a new covenant. It's very important that we grasp this. Now, of course, a covenant uh, is, in historic terms, a legal binding agreement. So whatever God is doing and doing new is, in his eyes, legal and binding to him towards us. So we have this clue here, a new covenant. Now, the best way I've found to to describe what we mean by this is, is to ask the question, if you were to build an extension onto your home, or if you're an American, an addition, the question is, would you have a new home? And the answer to that, of course, is no, you wouldn't have a new home, you'd just have the old house, the old home, with a new bit added on. Therefore, the new covenant cannot be something old with a new bit added on. Otherwise, it's not new. We'd have to call it, time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new addition to the old building. But he doesn't say that. He says, I'll make a new covenant. Not make a new addition to an old covenant, but make a new covenant. Now, sadly, most people's understanding and experience of the new covenant is exactly this, that it's the old covenant by which we mean the law and the commandments with Jesus added on, okay? So that's most people's understanding of the new covenant. The law and commandments point out that we're sinful, but thank God Jesus came to save us from our sins. So there's the new covenant. That is not the new covenant. And never was meant to be the new covenant. 
You see, what's interesting, if we go back to our scripture, is that it says, the time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with my people. And here's the key, it will not be like, right? That's a, that's a powerful statement. It will not be like. So it's not going to be like something. What's it not going to be like? It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt. So the question is, what is the covenant that God made with our forefathers when he took them by the hand and led them out of Egypt? The truth is that's a covenant which within it had the Ten Commandments and the law. Okay? So it was based on the commandments and the law was the covenant that God made. And that is widely known as the Old Covenant. The Old Covenant is the commandments and the law. Of course, part of that is the Ten Commandments that we uh, are all at least familiar with existing, even if we couldn't repeat what they actually are. So, so he says that this new covenant will not be like that. It won't be like it. So if we're going to be honest then, we have to say that whatever it is that he is introducing, if what we experience looks like, feels like, sounds like, or smells like that old covenant with the commandments and the law, then it's not the new covenant. Because he says right here in black and white, it will not be like. So we're then faced with this, this wonderful dilemma or this frightening challenge from whichever angle you come at it, that this new covenant departs from the familiarity that we have with what we have understood to be the basis even for Christian life, the law, the Ten Commandments. So it's not going to be like that covenant. Now it says because they broke it. Well, I would propose to you there's only one possible outcome to that kind of covenant, the Ten Commandments and the law. It's going to get broken. It just is. So don't be too surprised at that. So, so if we now just jump away from that and jump into the New Testament, we're going to look at um, an almost identical repeat scripture in the book of Hebrews. And that's found in Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 7 through 13. Now, what's interesting about the restating of this covenant from Jeremiah chapter 31 in Hebrews chapter 8 is that the writer of Hebrews, whether it was Paul or whoever it was, sandwiches it between two very interesting verses. And so in verse 7, it says this, For if there had been nothing wrong with that first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. Now, hang on a minute. That statement is suggesting that there was something wrong with the first covenant to the extent that it needed to be replaced because the only conclusion you could draw is that it was fatally flawed. Because if there'd been nothing wrong with the first covenant, he says, no place would have been sought for another. So we come from an interesting angle, not just that the new covenant is the introduction of Jesus, but the new covenant is making a huge statement about the role, the purpose, and the continuance or not of this old covenant, which we know that first covenant is all about the law and the commandments, okay? It's based on rules 
not relationship. It's based on you're punished for doing bad, you're rewarded for doing good. And he says that covenant was fatally flawed. Now, that's challenging because all of us in here were raised with the view on life that says you are rewarded for doing good, you are punished for doing bad. The Bible actually teaches that that is a flawed system for humanity and that our insistence on pursuing life through that criteria has got us to where we are. That all roots back to the trees in the Garden of Eden where God said a very interesting thing. He said there were two trees, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Not the tree of knowledge. There's nothing wrong with knowledge. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But this is also fascinating because you would think it would just be the tree of the knowledge of evil. But it's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And in Genesis chapter 3, God said to Adam, don't eat from that tree. Now, you would think that the God we have understood and who we have been taught would say exactly the opposite. He would say, I want you to eat as much fruit as you can off the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because in eating that tree, you'll know what's right and wrong and you'll know what's good and evil, which we would say had to be a great thing. But God said, I don't want you to do that. He said, in fact, in the day that you do that, in dying, you will die. Now, the words we read, you will surely die. Now, we all know, if we've read the Bible, that having eaten from that tree, Adam and Eve didn't suddenly stop breathing and fall down dead. Because the death was never primarily about the end of physical life. It was actually about their ability to be who they were meant to be would be seriously and detrimentally affected from that point because it was going to break down the very thing God was always looking for. The thing God was looking for was relationship, not rules. He was looking for love, not regulations. And so the problem is we chose to live life by a system of right and wrong and good and evil rather than by relationship with the Father. Now, there's lots we can say about that and will say about that as we continue to teach. But if we learn how to live properly in relationship with the Father, we know what we're supposed to do because we know who we are under him, but that's a story for another day. So here we've got this amazing thing. If there had been nothing wrong with that first covenant, so can we conclude there was something wrong with the first covenant? It's either that or you have to take your, your, your sharpie, your black sharpie, and, and scribble this verse out of the Bible because it's there. So I propose to you the fatal flaw in the old covenant was that it could never bring us close to God. It could never bring us into relationship with God. All it ever did was scream out at us, you're a failure, you're a sinner, you're a lawbreaker, you've missed the mark, you've missed the point. That's all it could ever say to us because we couldn't keep the law. Does that make sense? Okay? So, if there'd been nothing wrong with that, we wouldn't need a new one. So the new covenant came actually to relieve us from what could never be accomplished under the old covenant. And then he begins to repeat almost identically what we have just read in Jeremiah chapter 31. In verse 8 he says, But God found fault with the people 
which, of course, what else can you do under the old covenant? And he said, the time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with my people. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt. Does this sound familiar? Because they did not remain faithful to my covenant and I turned away from them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with my people after that time, declares the Lord. Now here's where something we're going to have to explain. Remember I told you in chapter 31 to remember that it says I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. Now here's a little problem we're going to have to deal with because... In Hebrews, it says, I will put my laws in their minds and write them, plural, on their hearts. And I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother saying, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, for I will forgive their wickedness and I will remember their sins no more. And then comes the other piece of bread for the sandwich, okay? Remember verse seven, if there'd be nothing wrong with that first covenant, There'd have been no need for another one. Now here's the other slice of bread on the sandwich in verse 13. By calling this covenant new, he has made the first one obsolete. And what is obsolete and aging will soon disappear. So, so he points out there was a flaw. He tells us what's replaced that flawed system. And then he said, in view of the fact that something new has been given, please let the old thing die. Right? If you've been given a new covenant, let the old covenant go. And so he says, by calling it new, he's made the first one obsolete. Now, if you've ever traveled in a um, either third world or emerging world country, one thing will become evident to you. That there are vehicles and, and machines that are kept running there way beyond the time that we would have sent them to the scrapyard. In fact, most of them were what we scrapped and somebody sold them to the Indians or the Cubans or, uh, because we're done with them. We realize that their effective lifespan, as far as we were concerned, is done and they should be graciously allowed to go to that great mechanics scrapyard in the sky. Uh, and so we see, particularly in India, we, we see these buses that, you know, just... Uh, you see, what happened, though, is that long, long ago, the manufacturers stopped making spare parts for those vehicles. Uh, and so when you go to the manufacturer and say, I'd like this part for this vehicle, they would tell you, we don't make that anymore, that's obsolete. It's not manufactured anymore, and it's not maintained anymore. It's obsolete. But what you learn is that there is a whole industry that sprung up in different places in the world where they make and manufacture spare parts so that they can keep things going that long ago we declared obsolete. Now, this is the point that Hebrews is making. A whole industry, spiritual industry if you can call it that, has grown up within the community of the church that is making spare parts to keep something running that God said was obsolete and needs to go to the scrap heap. 
And so we make spare parts to make sure that we maintain the commandments and we maintain the law and we maintain everything associated with them. But here it says, right in black and white, that once you call this covenant new, you have to call the first one obsolete. It's become old and it's obsolete and it's got to be allowed to graciously disappear. Now, we will talk at some future point about the glory that was in the law. But the glory that was in the law was a fading glory. And the law was not without purpose. The law had great purpose. But the point is, once the law has fulfilled its purpose, you have to let it go. Okay? Now, you see, what you may not understand is that God never gave the law so that we could prove we could keep it. He gave the law to prove to us that we could never keep it. He had to somehow get through into our thick skulls that if you are trying to attain a place of acceptance and righteousness and perfection before God by your own human efforts, you will never do it. And so the law is a staggering confrontation to challenge us to say, God, if there is not a better way than this, we are most certainly lost. It's the end. We'll never make it. So along comes, God prophetically speaks to us and said, okay, once you get that message, I need you to know the good news. Because the new covenant is actually the gospel. And the gospel is the good news. And the reason it's called good news is because it's good and it's news. How many of you know that anything new is news? And if you can also attach to that that it's good, which this is, you have, in essence, what we have now created a word to say, which I don't like the word, but we use it willingly. Gospel means good news. So say good news. As I've said many times, the one reason we invent words in the church like gospel, even though we know that gospel means good news, is because if we call it gospel, we can get away with saying stuff that's neither good nor news. And nobody will notice. But if we say, I'm going to share with you the good news, it has to be good, and it has to be news. The new covenant is fantastic good news. It's amazing good news. In fact, it's such good news, you might not believe it. That's how good it is. And so as dear old Brennan Manning used to say, we tried to hide its, its shining brightness of the gospel, its blinding brightness because it seems too good to be true. This is the new covenant that I'm introducing you to. And so, and so we have it in this, so, so we have to let the obsolete disappear. We have to be willing to accept that there was no need for a new covenant unless that first covenant had something wrong with it, a fatal flaw. So God says, okay, here's what I'm going to bring. It's called the new covenant. Now, one of the, two other verses uh, of many in the New Testament that we could quote, but Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 14 and 15 says, for he himself, that's Christ, that's Jesus, is our peace, who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. Listen to verse 15. By abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. Now there are those who will argue with you that the new covenant only replaced the hygienic and... I um, missed the other word I'm looking for, 
rules, ceremonial rules of, of, the, of the law of Moses. But I would beg to differ because by what Jesus did, he abolished in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations, both. You can't separate them. And I'll show you also why the new covenant has to free us from the Ten Commandments. Otherwise, the new covenant doesn't work. Okay? We'll talk about that in a moment. So, um, let's jump back. Our, our two scriptures make this statement. The time is coming, declares the Lord. Okay? The time is coming, declares the Lord. Okay? That's in verse... Um, sorry, that's in verse 8 in the Hebrews 8 reference. And it's in... Verse 31 of the Jeremiah 31 reference. The time is coming. Now, if we can answer that question, what is the time and has it come? We know whether we are actually in the new covenant now or whether these staggering statements that are made about the new covenant, which we're going to deal with in a few moments, which, which change everything, whether they're True or not, because what many people want to do is push this into a future date. They're called futurists, okay? I want to push it into a future date. This, this is about some post-rapture, if you believe in a rapture, uh, millennial reign, if you believe in a millennium. And, you know, by just saying that, I raise a thousand questions with some of you. Some of you are watching now online and thinking, oh, dear Jesus, help him. That's not our conversation, but it should be raised because so much of how we were taught to think about scriptures that challenge us is to put them in the future. So we think your kingdom come, your will be done is something out there in the future when it's not. The, the, the verbs that he used and the tense that he used are your kingdom come and your will be done here in this millisecond of time past and time to come. Okay, so, so we've got to be careful about relegating it and accept the challenge. So the time is coming. So when is the time? Well, I would just propose to you what I think is one killer answer to that. And it's all we really need to say if we're going to be honest and have integrity about truth. Here we are now, the Last Supper. Jesus is with the disciples in the upper room. And he's about to take the bread and the wine. And as he lifts the cup of celebration of the wine, he says something that nobody's said before. Because only he could really say it. He lifts the cup and, and says to these Jewish disciples, he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. There's the first New Testament reference to new covenant. Because what was prophesied back in the days of Jeremiah, Jesus said it just became reality now. This is it. This is the time. That's in Luke chapter 22 and verse 20. This cup is, is that past tense? Is that future tense? Is that present tense? This cup is the new covenant in my blood. So therefore there was an isness about what Jesus was doing that declared that right then in that present moment in the cup and of course then being, being, um, um, uh, agreed upon by the giving of his own blood, 
This cup is the new covenant in my blood. His blood giving testimony to that on the cross was saying this is it. This is the time. The new covenant starts right here in me. So I propose to you that what Jeremiah prophesied about all those years before has now become a reality and that when the writer of Hebrews is writing about it, he's now writing about something that is already functioning and working, which is why he could tag those two verses onto it because he's got a deeper revelation than Jeremiah ever had about the presence of this new covenant and what it really meant. So, if, if the new covenant is already active, and, and if because it's active, it declares to us that because of the new one, then there had to be something wrong with the old one. And if it's declaring to us that it abolishes the law and its commandments, if it's saying to us that what's obsolete and aging has to disappear, then that becomes our immediate challenge to get a hold of the full implications of the new covenant, which is the now existing covenant of God in the earth, okay? So let's now come back to look at this covenant because we pointed out that in Jeremiah 31, it uses singular tense. It says, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. And then we have this problem theologically that when we come to the book of Hebrews, it's written, I will put my laws in their minds, plural, and write them, plural, on their hearts. Now, I have an objection against the Hebrew the translation in the book of Hebrews, and I'm going to explain why, because it's inconsistent with the rest of New Testament translation for this reason. And you don't have to be a deep Greek scholar, it's just very simply this. The, the word, my law, that we've got there, you get in the Greek word, nomos. Okay, N-O-M-O-S. Okay, nomos. I will put my nomos in their minds and write it on their hearts. What's interesting is that word nomos is, occurs 198 times in the New Testament. Okay, so we've got 198 chances to translate the word nomos. In every translation other than two, in the whole of the New Testament, so 196 times, nomos is translated law, L-A-W. There are only two verses where nomos is translated laws, L-A-W-S, and that's here in Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 10. And it's in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 16, which is a repeat of Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 10. The other 196 times, it uses the word law. Now, I am also a student of language, so I understand that law can be plural or singular. So we have to look a little deeper to say, is this plural or is this singular, even with the use of the word law? My belief is that it was always meant to be singular. Now, let me give you an alternative translation to 
Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 10, which we can back up and verify, but I'm not going to go into all the technical details, but it would be just as accurate to write, I will write to them on their minds my law, right? So them and their is plural. I will write to them on their minds my law, singular, and I will put in them, in their heart, right, my law, singular. So them and their is what ought to be the plural in that verse, not laws. Now, you might say, well, why the heck does that matter at all? Because this is critical to understanding the new covenant. If you don't catch this, you will never grasp the miracle of the new covenant. And so we're going to progress to to explain that. Now, take a step back. So whatever that law is, so we're going to assume for the moment that the law is a singular law. Whatever that law is that he puts in their minds and writes on their hearts, it does three things. It clears the way for him to be their God and they to be his people. He said, I will be their God and they will be my people. Okay, that's a statement from God. That's not a statement with conditions. If you, he says, I'm going to make a covenant and I'm going to make this declaration. I will be their God and they will be my people. It's a statement of belonging and ownership, right? Theirs and mine. It's belonging and ownership. God says, I'm going to do something to make you belong. Now, the truth is, if you know anything at all about the old covenant, you never belonged. You were always wanting to belong. Even the high priest, the big daddy of them all, the big cheese, the one in their essence nearest to God, the Hebrew Pope, if it helps, you'd understand. Once a year, just once, could he go into the very holiest of places in the tabernacle. Only once a year. And that by much ceremony had to be dressed right. He had to approach it right. And he had to take with him an offering of blood. Once a year is all that he could go in there, hoping that that blood that he took in would appease God's anger towards the people. So, so we have an image of an angry God who has to be appeased. Now, does that sound familiar to most religious patterns? We were raised with God is angry, we have to appease God. And if we're not careful, even our explanation of the cross is God is angry and God must be appeased. So Jesus is the way of appeasing God's anger. Conclusion of that is, therefore, that that, that, that the reason Jesus died was to save us from God. Right? Because if God's angry and Jesus has to die because of that anger, you could argue that we think then that Jesus came to save us from God. He didn't. The good news is he didn't. Now, again, that's, that's, again I'm opening some little th- streams of thought for you here. But to show you in the new covenant, it's staggering because whatever it is he puts in us gives a sense of, of belonging and attachment in a way you could never have under the old law. You were always looking through the sacrifices and feasts and everything to be accepted. God said, I'll accept you. You belong. And it clears the way for them to know the Lord. He said, they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest. That was an alien concept to the average Jew. 
You couldn't know the Lord. You, you could be, you could be um, um, covered and, and, and accepted in a detached way, but to know the Lord... That was a very personal upfront thing. It changed the whole ballgame. But now he says in the new covenant, and they will all know me, which is staggering, they'll all know me from the least of them to the greatest. Now, we ought to talk at some point again about the Bible definition of least and great because it's very interesting. Because if you understand that, it will change how you deal with the world around you and your attitude to people. But he said, they'll know me from the least to the greatest. And then it carries with it two more I wills. I will forgive their wickedness, and I will remember their sins no more. I will is an arbitrary statement. It's a unilateral statement from one person to another. I will, right? Not we will. Not if you do. I will. Now, I'd like to connect this to what are known as the four I wills of the old covenant Passover meal, which are found in Exodus chapter 6, when God says, I will deliver you, I will, I will be your God, I will bring you up out of the land, and I will bring you into a good and pleasant land. All I want to say about that is, if you go and study that, note that it says it's the four I wills, not the four you musts. The problem is, the moment we get associated and attached to the law, how many of you think the law is full of I wills or is the law full of you musts? So the whole relationship changes in the old covenant from I wills to you musts. Can you see now why the writer of Hebrews wanted to say, if there hadn't been a fatal flaw, we wouldn't need a new covenant, but there was a fatal flaw. The fatal flaw was that it was all based on you must, and the problem is you must, but you couldn't. So God brings us back to the purity of his heart and says, here's how it's going to be. I will, I will, I will, I will. So the new covenant reiterates that declaration of their deliverance from Egypt when God says, I will forgive their wickedness, I will remember their sins no more. Their sins and unrighteous acts I will remember no more. Now, we have to just dwell here just for a moment because this presents a challenge to most of our traditional concepts of evangelism. Um, because it's not where we were taught from. You've got the issue, for example, he said, they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest. What does that mean? And if we're in the time of the new covenant, what does that mean for us? Well, it's fascinating when Jesus was ministering to the crowd and he wasn't his disciples he said this to. He said this to the people who were actually arguing with him, right? The crowd, the, the, the fringe, the religious, everybody, not just his disciples. And they said, where is the kingdom? And when will the kingdom be? And Jesus said, well, it's not going to be here or there or like this or like that. But he said this. He said, but the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God is within you. Now that was fascinating. Because this wasn't a group of evangelical, spirit-filled, born-again, whatever your language is, um, you know, confirmed, cremated, created, <laughs> baptized, whatever frame you come from, it wasn't a bunch of those people. It would be like me walking into the city and saying the kingdom of God is within you. 
Now this changed the whole ball game because Jesus was saying, therefore the gospel in the new covenant is not about what you get into people, it's about what you bring out of people. It changes the criteria from how I was raised that, that you have to accept Jesus into your life to now it's Jesus accepting me into his life. See? Big difference. Not about me accepting God into my life, it's now about God accepting me into his life. Now, many of the invitations that we were raised with, there's no problem, they were good invitations and they have affected us and touched us and many of us here came from understandings we don't have now but have been wonderfully connected to God and loved by God and loved by Jesus because he wasn't making that a law for us. But what I've come to realize is when I thought I was inviting him into my life, I realized it was the other way around. He was inviting me into his life. And I had the brains one day to say, yeah, that sounds like a fantastic idea and I'd really love that. But the other problem we face is this. It said, their sins and unrighteous acts I will remember no more. So if we accept the new covenant, we have a massive shift because in the old covenant, the end result was your sins and unrighteous acts I'll remember no more. Okay? We were reminded, Paul teaches us, there was a daily reminder in the old covenant of our sin. We were always reminded of our sin and our law breaking. But in the new covenant, instead of your sins and unrighteous acts, I remember no more being the end result, it becomes the starting point. We don't start at work towards forgiveness, we start from forgiveness. See, the problem of working towards forgiveness is that always within there, invariably, is going to slip a mentality that connects us back with the knowledge of the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If I do good, I'll be accepted. If I do evil, I'll be rejected. And the sad thing is, many people, and maybe some of you in here today, still think that about God. If I do good, I'll be accepted by God. But if I do wrong... I won't be accepted by God. Well, how much wrong is wrong? And what is that wrong to each individual person? And how do you take into... All gets very complicated. And all the issue of the old war, if you bring the right sacrifices at the right time and you dress in the right way and you do the right things, then you may be forgiven. But we already read the problem with that covenant was that they were breakers of that covenant all the time because they couldn't do it. So God says, in order to make this new covenant brilliant, in order to make it work, I'll make your sins and unrighteous acts, I'll remember no more, the starting point. So the good news to the world is God says, hey, your sins and unrighteous acts, I remember them no more. I've already forgotten them. So now we have this challenging thing that if this is true, we don't repent, which is a, a church word I was many times introduced to. We don't repent to be forgiven. We repent because we are forgiven. So repentance is not a begging God to forgive us. Repentance is a thankfulness to God that he has forgiven us. Now, of course, the problem is in our amens to that is that means probably a lot more people are, to use my old terminology, saved, right with God, 
than we have given credit for because we're still looking at how they behave and how they worship and how they approach God. But that's why in the new covenant, so let's take that out of the equation. So if we're going to be truly new covenant believers and if we believe what Jesus said that this cup is the new covenant in my blood and that has begun, then we have to accept that more people than we ever conceived, God has said, I'm your God, you're my people. And he said, you already know who I am, you just don't realize that you know I am just yet, but the kingdom of God is within you. And here's the good news, you need to know, I am not judging you according to the sins that you perceive you have committed. I have dealt with that now because Jesus is part of that whole process that God now no longer looks at the world through the world's measurement according to the law, but he looks at the world now through his measurement according to the application of the new covenant. Massive implications, lots for some of you to think about that will give you some sleepless nights. We've gone through all our sleepless nights. I just think this is incredibly good news. And most people who don't, like this, it's because we think, hey, I gave my life to Jesus, I gave up loads of stuff, I've really worked hard at this, I don't want them lot to benefit from the goodness of God when they haven't done any of the stuff that I've done. Do you remember Jesus once told a story, he said he went at the first hour of the day and said to some people, come work in my, vi- my vineyard, I'll give you a pound, pound an hour. So they went, and then the 11th hour, it's only one hour to go, he goes back and says, come work in my vineyard, I'll give you a pound. So when they all line up to be paid at the end, the ones who've worked all day in the heat of the day, toiled in the sun, thought, heck, we're in. If he's going to pay that to these guys who only came during the last hour, think what we're going to get, and he paid them all the same. And he says, the ones who came first got mad. Because actually they didn't want the people who came in later to be blessed. They didn't want God to be generous. They didn't want the master to be kind. They wanted the master to be fair. Now if there's one thing I do not want from God, I don't want God to be fair. I do not want a fair God. Because if God is fair, I'm in a big mess. Because there's none righteous, no, not one. I've got a problem if God's fair and treats me fairly. The wonderful thing about God is he doesn't treat me fair. Nothing fair about the gospel. The gospel's extremely unfair because it's a God who in his love and kindness decided that he was going to, from his own person, do what was necessary for you and I to come into the vineyard, the workplace, and get paid the same because he's kind and he's good. So if you understand this, it changes. You can no longer perceive and therefore present the gospel, the good news, in the same way, okay? Now, I honor and respect all that's gone before. Please don't, please don't say things here about this that I am not saying. I thank God that by all the means that we've come to know the wonder of God and the kindness. I'm just glad we're understanding this now because I think we can help a lot more people, okay? Um, What we lose in this is the leverage that's afforded us by the law. Because the law's brilliant because you can get all over people with the law. Thou shalt not. (laughs) Thou definitely shalt not that. 
Absolutely. Oh, don't you know the first commandment? Tremendous leverage. And do you know what the penalty is for that? Leverage. It's all leverage. It's all leverage. It's all manipulation. God is not interested in frightening you into following him. Because God is love. How could I ever be convinced of Chris's love for me as a wife if I frightened her into marrying me? I probably did, but how could I ever be sure? How could I ever be sure? And one of the things we've grown accustomed with, which is why we don't want to let the law be obsolete and age and pass away, is because it affords us amazing leverage. And it means that we can measure ourselves as being better than or more than or greater than, which of course is a lie anyway, but it's that leverage of the law. So, so the, the issue isn't, the problem is for us, if you want to call it a problem, we lose the leverage that afforded us by the law and we have to replace it with the liberty that's possible only through love. And I actually like that better. So, um, let's talk a little bit about then this issue of the singular law. What is it that he puts in our mind and writes on our hearts? If it's an it, what is it is a good question. Now, most often if I were to ask this question, particularly in a church environment, um, people would point you to uh, a little story in Matthew chapter 22. And it's verse 36 through 40. And in verse 36, um, a guy comes to Jesus and says, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Many of you will be familiar with Jesus' reply. Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So, most people will say... What he writes on your heart is that you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. And if you want a second one, you love your neighbor as yourself. Um, I cannot stress to you how wrong that is as an interpretation of what Jesus said. Um, I understand why we say it, and I've, I've said it in the past myself. But, but, but I want you to notice a couple of things that are very important here. Uh, and also why why I struggle. If, if what he's going to write on my heart is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength, I'm terrified. If, if we're going to say, okay, let's, let's shrink off all these regulations and let's chop eight of the commandments off and just give you two, right? So, so even in that context now, we've just got two, this is the first and the greatest of the commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. Question, is anybody in here, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind? And if you put your hand up, I'm going to have to tell you, you're a deceived liar, because you haven't. Every moment of every day, in every thought, in every imagination, in every action, in every dream, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your strength. You haven't done it and you can't do it. 
And Jesus said that's the greatest of the commandments. And, and if, you, if you think you've done that, I'll give, you, I'll give you one just to back that up. Just, just in the case there's any who are kind of so proud and arrogant that they think they've done that, and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, I didn't say love your neighbor, because if I said, do you love your neighbor? Oh, yeah, my neighbor's lovely. You know, cut my grass, the lovely. No, I didn't say love your neighbor. He said, love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, you afford to your neighbor every privilege, every benefit, every resource that belongs to you. You love your neighbor as yourself. So, has anybody done one of those things or two of those things? So, here's my point. If that's what he writes on your heart and puts in your mind, God help us. Because it's one thing, at least if it's written on paper in a Bible, you can put the Bible away and say, oh, I'm off for a walk on the beach. I've got to get some fresh air to get over that. But if you can't get it out of your thinking and it's in here, how condemned are you going to feel? So it can't be that. Now, let's also look at this with proper eyes as a, as a theological statement. Not only couldn't you keep it, if you just established, but the second reason is you haven't read the question accurately. Right? Let me bring you back to the question, verse 36. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Now, it's very different to which is the greatest commandment, like ever of anything that anybody ever said. He said, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Law. So Jesus said, seeing as you've asked, the greatest commandment in the law is this, and this is the second greatest. He was not saying what he wants to put on your heart. He was answering the jolly question. But then we take that and say, well, that must be what he puts in our hearts because we're still bound in not letting the old law go obsolete and understanding the wonder of the new covenant. Now, some others think that John 14, verse 15 is the answer to the question of what he writes in our heart, puts in our mind, where it says, Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commands. Now, of course, the moment we hear the word commands, we think commandments. So we think Jesus is saying, if you love me, you'll keep the commandments. That's not what he's saying at all. The, the choice of words there for English as we understand it now with the development of language is a little unfortunate because... We hear commands, we think commandments, so we think Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep the commandments, when he doesn't. I love what the NIV says, because it helps us more in the context of our language. It writes, if you love me, you'll do what I say. How of you know there's something very different in doing what somebody says and keeping commandments? Yeah. See, one is regulational, the other is relational. One is about rules... The other is about love and relationship and kindness. So that scripture does not mean, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. It says, if you love me, you'll do what I say. Hence the reason why Jesus said, I, I do what I see the Father do. I say what I hear the Father say. So it's, it's neither of those. So, so the question is then, what is it? The law that he puts in the mind and writes on the heart requires some defining. Fascinating statement in Romans 13 and verse 10, which says, Love is the fulfillment of the law. So when you walk through the law, you come all the way through the law, and you get to the end of the law, and that's kind of you've stepped out of the law. It says you're left with one thing love 
is the fulfillment of the law. In other words, the only way the law will ever get fulfilled is not by keeping the law. The only thing that can fulfill the requirements of the law is love because love says your sins and unrighteous acts are remember no more. Love says you'll know me from the least to the greatest. That's the language of love. So, love is the fulfillment of the law. Um, John, the disciple of Jesus, also wrote, or somebody wrote from what John said, however you like to look at it, in, in, in 1 John chapter 4 and verse 10. This is love. Is a definition. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us. So here again comes the shift in the new covenant. The old covenant is all about how much you love God. And everything you were required to do had to be a demonstration of how much you love God. And you hoped that you had been so perfect in your loving God that he would look on you with favor. But you see, in the new covenant, John caught it because he said, no, no, you've got it wrong. That's nothing to do with love. This is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us. So the new covenant says it's not about the measurement of how well you've loved God. It's about your appreciation of how much God has loved you. So it doesn't become a loving to get. It becomes a a receiving of love that is given, right? So I am loved because God chose to love me, because he wanted to love me, because he likes me. Here is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us. And what I found fascinating in the new covenant is that God is not measuring my righteousness by the measure to which I think I return love to God. He's measuring my righteousness by the amount of love that he pours upon me. And so John qualifies that a little more in verse 19 of that same chapter, 1 John chapter 4, he said, and we love him because he first loved us. So John says a genuine love that really denotes our faith in God and makes us followers of Jesus and people of the way, he says is when we've understood the because. We love him because he first loved us. So any efforts that we make to love him back only come from the one reason, because he first loved us. That means that Jesus does not see and God does not see keeping the rules of the law as an act of love. And we can talk about that another time. Now, it's good to do things that are that, but that's not how God sees acts. We love him because he first loved us. We recognize his love for us. So, would it not make sense then that the law that he writes on our heart is the law of love. So it's still a law. It's not that we become lawless by coming into the new covenant because the new covenant is a legal binding agreement. It's a legal document. It's a legal transaction. We come into another law, but instead of all those laws, we now come under a law, and that law is the law of love. And the first declaration of that law of love is God's love for me which also means I could walk down Micklegate today into the town and anybody I meet, that same love in that same measure is pouring on their life. Because I didn't earn it, they didn't earn it. I don't deserve it, they don't deserve it. But God said, it's the law of love. There's a law that's at work. 
among humanity right now. And it's that law of love. So, if that's what's in our hearts, how do we express that and what biblically can we put towards that to help us understand it? Well, the first declaration we make is that the new covenant then is a one law covenant. Now this is very important. So we've gone from the 613 regulations of the old covenant and the 10 commandments to a one law covenant. Now, to show you how important it is that you understand that, I'm, I'm going to illustrate that from scripture. Genesis chapter 15, there is an account there of God's dealings with Abraham. And God's called Abraham out from his people, his country, his father's house. You know, Abraham's taken a step to to go in a direction, but he doesn't know where he's going. He's just said, I'll go in that direction. And that's also part of New Covenant understanding. And then God meets him in the desert and says, okay... Um, I'm going to make a covenant with you. Sound familiar? I'm going to make a covenant with you. I'm make a promise, a legal binding promise. And here's what I want you to do. So I want you to take several animals and birds. Uh, you can read the story in 15 if you're interested which animals. He said, I want you to divide the carcasses. So in other words, split, the, split their bodies in two. Now, This was not unfamiliar to Abraham because he was in a culture of that time where they understood. He understood immediately what was going to happen. God was going to make covenant with Abraham because in Abraham's day, you you would kill animals, you would separate the carcasses, and then you would walk through the blood that was in the middle with each other and you would make a declaration, may it be done to me as has been done to these animals if I fail to keep the covenant that I have made with you this day. So it was called a blood covenant. You, the, the literal Hebrew word was to cut a covenant. And that's what it meant, to cut a covenant, because it involved that soul. Abraham's familiar with this. He gets it already. There's all blood. And comes time for the covenant to be made, Abraham falls asleep. In fact, more accurately, God puts Abraham to sleep. And uh, while he's having his deep sleep and dreaming and in the land of Nod and, you know, seeing stuff and hearing stuff, uh, when he wakes up, the covenant's already made. God walked through the carcasses without Abraham, okay? And so you read these kind of phrases in Genesis 15. My covenant, God says, that I made with you. Not our covenant that we made. Not the covenant that you made with me. It's all my covenant that I made with you. Because only God walked through the broken bodies that were there. And on that day, God made a covenant with Abraham that he would never break. And we are the beneficiaries of that because... Uh, Galatians says if you're Christ then you're Abraham's seed and heirs of that same promise here's the point of that covenant which never changed that Abraham covenant this is not the old covenant this is the Abraham covenant another story God makes the covenant with Abraham and, um, and so it's my covenant that I made with you now after just clarifying one little theological thing for the theological thinkers When you move into Genesis chapter 17, we experience 
God speaking to Abraham about circumcision, okay? And I don't need to describe what circumcision is. But God said it would be good, Abraham, if you and every male who accepts what I've done were circumcised. Now, our confusion is we think that when Abraham circumcised himself, that that was him entering into covenant with God, but it wasn't. That was Abraham acknowledging and wanting to carry around in his flesh the sign that he had, had a covenant made with him by God. This is the sign of God's covenant with me, not the sign of my covenant with God. And uh, there is a verse in there, I just have to deal with it before we, we bring this to a close because you can get confused with this because... In chapter 17 of Genesis and verse 13, it says, whether born in your household or bought with your money, they must be circumcised. My covenant in your flesh is to be an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who has not been circumcised in the flesh will be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Now, that leads us to think something, which is you can break the covenant. How can you make something that you, how can you break something that you didn't make? So did Abraham make a covenant with God or did God make a covenant with Abraham? So if you didn't make it, you can't break it, right? Because you didn't make it, so you can't break it. So we have to have another understanding of this verse in chapter 17. Would it interest you to know that the Hebrew word that's translated there in our English, broken my covenant, again is misleading for us because that word also means to break up as in to just not accept it in its fullness. It means to frustrate, to disappoint, to dissolve, to divide, to make of no effect, to make void. So how about if we said, God said, Abraham, if you don't get a grasp on this, here's what's going to happen. You will frustrate my covenant or in other words you're just going to stop it doing all that it could do for you but if you stop frustrating it it will do everything it was supposed to do for you because you didn't make it so you can't break it but you can frustrate it and so I propose to you that many people and probably we ourselves as we live life often become frustrators of the covenant but because we think all law we think we're breakers of the covenant so here's Abraham, here's God. If you didn't make it, you can't break it. So I'm going to pose you something staggering. It was impossible for Abraham to break the covenant that God made with him that day because if you didn't make it, you can't break it. Now, let me run you forward. We come to the cross. And here we have Jesus offering himself as a sacrifice. And whatever you make of that, however you wish to understand it, the truth is that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, is what the Bible says. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. What happened to the carcass of Jesus on the cross? It was blooded, it was broken, and we have all the elements of a covenant being made. 
But instead of God passing through the carcasses of animals, it said God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Or in other words, God passed through the broken body of Jesus and made a covenant with humanity just like he did with Abraham. And he called that the new covenant in Christ's blood. Now here's the issue. Did you make a covenant with God at the cross or did God make a covenant with you? So here's your problem. If you didn't make it, you can't break it. So it forces us to have a different definition on humanity's response to God in the light of understanding how the covenant was made, who made the covenant, why the covenant was made, and therefore it brings into the equation that just maybe the scripture is right when he says your sins and unrighteous acts I will remember no more is the starting point because you never made a covenant with me, I made a covenant with you. Therefore you couldn't break it and so if I haven't broken it, my sins and unrighteous acts can't be remembered anymore because that has to be the starting point because he made a covenant with me. So in Abraham's covenant, it was really just a one law covenant that I'm going to make you the father of many nations. Who was going to do what? To whom and for whom? I will make you. Or in other words, Abraham understood before we ever had the new covenant, there's one law here and it's not a law that I keep. It's a law that he keeps. And then we come forward to realize the covenant God has made with us in Christ is a one law covenant. It's a covenant of his unbroken love towards us. And the wonderful thing is, it's a one law covenant, but it's not a law that we keep. It's a law that he keeps. So it's not going to be broken. Why did he want to make the old law obsolete? Because anything that we have to keep, we won't. Anything that's necessary for us to fully secure what has to be achieved won't get done. So God says, here's the deal of the new covenant. I showed you it in Abraham. I tried to teach you through the law that you would never be able to keep these rules. You'd never be able to live at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You'd never be able to make it on yourself. So he says, now that I think I've got that point through to you, I'm going to show you again. Here's the sacrifice. Here's the covenant. Here's my covenant made with you. And because of that, I'm going to call it the new covenant because you know the other thing is the old covenant. So I have to distinguish it and say that's obsolete and passed away. And now I need you to come here and live in the wonder of this new covenant. And that's the gospel. That's the gospel. That's the good news. And that's where we live today. I'm going to drop one more thought into your heart. Because for some of the theologians start thinking about Abraham and circumcision. Circumcision is a very interesting thing because without getting too anatomical, um, in circumcision there's, there's a piece of flesh that's removed from, from the male member. Now you've got to understand the wisdom of this, Okay. Where does the seed that produces life come from? It comes through the male, it comes through that, comes into the woman, and life is produced. 
The Bible is all the time talking about the seed, the seed, the seed. The Bible calls Christ the seed of Abraham. His seed, because it's actually talking in that sexual connotation of the, the seed, the sperm. It, it even uses a Greek word, spermata, the sperm that brings life. Now, now here's the issue. God was saying to Abraham, listen, Abraham, what I am doing is so amazing, I, I want to protect it. So I said, in order for you to understand what I'm doing, I want you to make it that this seed will never pass through your flesh. I don't want it to touch your flesh. What the Bible means by that is, I don't want you to get your grubby hands on it, mess with it, change it. I want it to come pure and clean from its source. I want it to come clean. So he said, in order to teach you this, I want you to circumcise every male. So you get the message that the seed that I've given you must never be allowed to pass through flesh. Now, the mess that we've made of so much of the gospel has come for that very reason because we passed it through human flesh. And that's why Paul says, listen guys, it's no longer circumcision of your thing to make you think, oh, I'm Jewish. He said, it's now circumcision of the heart. In other words, get a pure heart that by faith is willing to receive the wonder, the blinding brightness of this thing. Get a circumcised heart so you don't pass this through the flesh and corrupt it and mess it up. Don't pass what I've taught you tonight through the flesh. Don't let it become corrupted by unbelief and by doubt and by tradition and by institution and by religion. It's the wonder of the good news. It's the wonder of the gospel. And that's the wonder of the new covenant that I present to you and trust that you receive it with an open heart for all that it is, and we'll fill in some more blanks at a later date. So God bless you. We're done. Have a wonderful evening. Yeah. Wonderful.